This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. Today I want to preach to you about the fruit of the gospel, truth, growing in the heart of the Christian gospeling our idols or preaching the gospel to our idols. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, in John's letter, he ends his letter. These are his final words that he gives to the Christians he's trying to encourage. This is it. Like this, there's no like big benediction like you would have Paul, you know, like may the God of grace pour out you know, this, this truth of the gospel in your hearts to build you up and, and knowing the, the, the length and breadth and height and of God's love. And, you know, you don't get that really with John. With John, he just lands this on us and drops the mic and sends the letter. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Then it's done. Sign sealed, delivered. It's out. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, writer of 13 of the New Testament books, he says this, my beloved, flee from idolatry, flee from the worship of these idols. But what what does that mean? And, And how do we do that? Another interesting verse in regards to this comes from Colossians chapter one, three through six. And it says, Paul again is writing, He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, for all these Christians, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth. What's the word of the truth? The gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So the gospel's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the gospel's bearing fruit, it's increasing in you. But what does that mean and what on earth does it look like for the gospel to bear fruit and increase in us, in you and in me? See, the gospel is grossly misunderstood in much of the Christian church today. It's seen as an entryway rather than the whole entire road that we travel. But it's just seen as the entryway to the Christian life. It's as if it's step one on the ladder of the Christian faith. Many believe and and many teach that the gospel is this sort of magic prayer that leads to you writing things down on a decision card, and it saves you from hell, and it makes you a Christian, and then the gospel is to be left behind for the for the others. It's the gospel is to be left behind for the lost people, but then once you're a Christian, you get to move on to bigger and better things within Christianity. It's as if you no longer need the Lord. It's as if you no longer need the gospel. You no longer need the truth of what Christ has done for us. There's greater things to to grab a hold of. Well, the gospel isn't this way. The gospel isn't just what saves us, but it's what transforms us after we have been converted into a Christian. 
The gospel is what makes us right with God. It is what the Bible considers our justification. But the gospel is also at work within us, bearing fruit and increasing within us, leading us to our sanctification, being changed and made much more like Jesus. So if there is a ladder that's involved in the Christian life, the gospel isn't step one. It's the entire ladder. And if you don't like the ladder imagery, I was talking to Pastor Jacob. He said it's a slide into paradise. So, so that's another way of looking at it. But I say these things now, and I preach this today, but I haven't always believed this. Back eight years ago, uh, in working to plant the axis here in Nashville, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, we partnered with, or seeking to partner with the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. And so we submitted an application and answered a lot of questions, like 70 pages worth of uh, single-spaced, 12-point font material that I produced, a lot of information. Um, and we sit down, my wife and I, we fly to St. Louis, and we're assessed by them for two hours where they ask you questions from your neighbors, from your finances, uh, to parenting, to the gospel, to your church plant vision and dream and church history and what kind of car you drive. And, and it's like they get into literally everything about your world in two hours. One of the questions that I knew they would ask, and they did, is what is the gospel? And so I was prepared. I was ready for this. And so I went online and I googled what is the gospel, John Piper, and I found his... <clears throat> this is the truth. Uh, this is how desperate I was to be impressive. Um, I memorized his 90-second answer to what is the gospel, not even thinking that they might have stumbled across the gospel on John Piper before. <clears throat> and so I give them this robust answer. I mean, I nailed it. And even the night before, I was studying and rehearsing, and I was going to Jill, and Jill, you need to know this too. You need to memorize this too. And Jill's just like, I'm just going to be me. And I'm like, oh boy, she's going to mess this up really bad. Like, We've got to be more than us, you know. Certainly wasn't resting in my identity. Um, they asked me, what is the gospel? And I give them that beautiful answer. In and among that was it's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's come to die here on earth and to beat death so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life with him being rescued from death and hell that we deserve. Their response was, okay, well, how does that apply to your life? What? It's, it's, I was like, in my mind, I was thinking, well, it doesn't. It's, it's for lost people. The gospel is for lost people, and it's what makes them Christians. And so I've, I've done that. This is literally, I was thinking this. I've done, you might be thinking this too. And I, I hope today is very refreshing and life-changing for you as it was for me. I was like, I've done that already. Like now it's like a tool that I have to give people who are lost so they can not go to hell. I don't know what you mean by, it doesn't apply to me anymore, was what I was thinking. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm already a Christian. The gospel doesn't apply. And so I just said, what? What do you mean? <laughs> Even though I was thinking all this stuff. And they said, well, for instance, how do you apply the gospel to your marriage or your ministry? And I said, guys, I, I don't understand. And they asked, well, how does the gospel work in your soul and in your mind to help you become a better husband? And I just looked 
blank stare like this is going down, it's over, go back to Charlotte, it's done. He says, how do you gospel yourself when you struggle as a daddy? And then that's kind of what put me over the edge. I was no longer trying to get out. I was trying to learn because these guys were talking an entirely foreign language to me. They just used gospel as a verb. Like the gospel is a statement. The gospel isn't a verb, right? It's a noun. It's a, like it's a description of a truth and a fact. It, you don't gospel, your, gospel yourself. What? Well, I was just like, man, what's happening here, right? Well, they tenderly and graciously worked with me through understanding that the gospel is for the Christian as well as the unchristian. That the gospel is bigger than I ever imagined in my life and my understanding. A new paradigm was introduced to me that day, that day, and something like scales fell off the eyes of my understanding and the eyes of my little box that I had the gospel placed in. I, I think in that moment, I became a new person. I learned that the gospel is the power to save and to continue to save even Christians. And so we walked out of our two-hour assessment, and some of my very first words to Jill were, and this is a verbatim quote, if what those guys said in there, if what those guys in there said is true, it changes everything. And this is after I've been preaching for, for nearly 18 years, been in youth ministry for 14 years at this point, preached hundreds of sermons. And when I heard the gospel... I think for the first time, truly heard the gospel, I said, if what those guys said is true, it changes everything. You see, I learned that that day that the gospel works in our hearts as like a searchlight, and it reveals the dark areas of the depths of our soul down to the motive level, the heart level, deep in who we are. I learned the gospel is like a shovel that digs deep to the root cause of my sin. Not just the fruit of my sin, but the sin beneath the sin. I'm angry. I need to repent for being angry. But what's causing me to be angry? What am I getting that I think I deserve and do I deserve that? The gospel works in our hearts in this sort of way. The gospel reveals what my idols are, so I can repent and experience true change. I learned that day that the gospel's for me. It's not just to be spoken by me, but the gospel is for me. Today, as, as a Christian, as a believer, in first, first Corinthians chapter 15 speaks of this. Explore that more there. Later that day, I told Jill, I said, now Jill, this... Good news is what Nashville needs. Like this. It's like before we were just going to go start a church, but now it's like we have a message. We have a truth. Like we have to go tell everyone they don't know the gospel. Like so I literally came back home from St. Louis going to pastors and youth pastors saying, man, you're not a Christian. Like you don't get it. Like I just was just, man, I lost my seatbelt and I was running everywhere trying to tell everybody that man, like you're not seeing it for, for what it really is. Because I had been in that religious bubble for so long without the gospel, that once I got the gospel, it's like, now this is worth selling everything to go buy that field. 
because there's treasure there. Like that is worth giving your life to. That is worth selling out for. That is worth having faith in. That changes me. Not just modifies my behavior or conforms me to a religious pattern, but this feeling within, this is transforming who I am. And I'm not having to try to be better. It's something that's happening in me. And I'm not really having to work that hard to get it. It's just happening in my heart. But then I discovered a problem. How do I preach? You know, I've been doing this for years without the gospel truth. And my thought was like, man, like in my sermon, am I supposed to just tell people the finished work of Jesus and, and that God loves them and here's how and point to the cross? Am I just supposed to preach the gospel? I mean, how am I supposed to preach if I don't use shame and guilt or fear to try to get people to change, to manipulate people? Like, am I... I mean, the gospel doesn't shame. The gospel doesn't produce guilt. The gospel points to Jesus being shamed for us, receiving the things that we are guilty for upon himself, freeing us from guilt and condemnation. So am I supposed to just get up there and preach the gospel and tell people good news? Okay. And then it became totally different. I felt very vulnerable trying to preach just the good news without trying to cause fear on my audience or guilt. or Because you can get a lot done with guilt. You can get a whole lot done with shame. You can work hard if you're scared. But just preaching the good news, does that really change, people? And it does. You see, the good news of the gospel speaks to the bad news of our sinful condition. You see, we're sinners. We're corrupt and ruined by sin. We're unable to be in relationship with God, our creator. And part of our sin is the belief that we can be satisfied, truly satisfied by things other than God. And the gospel tells us that Jesus came to deal with our sin problem personally. He came to bear responsibility for us. That's our job, but he came to do it for us. Jesus came to live perfectly for you. He came to die as you. He came to bear the wrath of God that's due your sin. He received it on the, on the tree, on the cross for you so that you would not have to fear shame or condemnation ever again. He came to destroy the works of the evil one, Satan. He came to destroy death, the curse that's upon us. So really Jesus came and reversed the curse. He came to die so that he could kill death. And most importantly, most importantly, what Jesus did for us was unite us back to God to make us friends with God, understanding what true satisfaction comes from knowing, truly knowing your eternal daddy your eternal Father, truly knowing the one who created you and who has purpose for you and your life. That is what Jesus does for us. Now by faith in the finished work of Jesus, you get to experience life in Christ 
true and lasting satisfaction. And applying this truth of the gospel to our heart and mind, that's what brings change. That's what transforms us. You see, the gospel reveals our idols. It allows us to repent And then we get to experience this true change. This is how the gospel goes to work in the lives of Christians. And I believe that a happy and growing Christian is one who is discovering their idols more frequently and repenting of their idolatry early and often, as soon as they catch it. So think of it this way. Trying to give some examples here. Why, Why do we lie? Why do we fail to love the right way? Why do we break our promises? Why do we exaggerate? Why do we live selfishly? Well, we know, of course, the answer is because we're weak, because we're sinful. But the specific answer is that there's something else beside Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that's more important to our heart than God. Something that's enslaving our heart through excessive desires. So then the key to change, and I would even say uh, of understanding ourselves better, is to identify the idols of the heart. But what do I mean by idols? I mean, I remember being a four-year-old boy and seeing a picture that my dad brought back from Togo, West Africa, while he was there digging wells. And he showed me this picture and said, son, this is an idol in Togo. All I saw was a glob of mud on the side of a fence post. It was an idol. And so my whole life, when I think idol, I think mud on a post, right? We all have different understandings maybe of what an idol is. But here's what I mean by idols. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, says this. Most of us think of an idol as a statue of wood or stone or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept of idolatry is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. So in biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust and fear or serve. In short, it's something we love and pursue more than God. Author and pastor uh, Dr. Timothy Keller says this, the human heart is an idol factory, borrowing that quote from John Calvin, but he expands on it. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance, Security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. So a simple way to try to discover what possibly some of our idols are is to ask questions. To ask questions like, what things take the place of God in my life? Or where do I find my significance and my confidence? What makes me angry? You see, anger is typically produced when you knock an idol off the shelf. What do I daydream about? Where does my mind drift and wander to when I'm waiting in line somewhere? Where do I spend money effortlessly? Where do I feel the greatest amount of guilt? Idols can be selfish ambition for money, power, fame, recognition. Idols can also be a physical object, property, a person, an activity, a job, an idea, 
an institution, a hope, an image, a pleasure. Idols are often, especially in the lives of Christians, idols aren't necessarily bad or wicked things. Idols can often be good things that we worship and we value and we begin to find our worth and our identity in, like food, friends, career, education, entertainment. For instance, working hard, or better, an obsession with work. If you have an obsession with work, the gospel works in such a way that it begins to ask you why. Why do you have an obsession with work? Why am I driven to sports and entertainment like I am? Why am I obsessed with the thought of a relationship with that person? Why am I addicted to food and alcohol, drugs and sex? Why? Why am I selfish and greedy? Why am I driven to perform at work like I am? Who am I trying to impress? What am I actually working for? What am I honestly looking for in my work? It's digging and asking these sorts of questions. You'll see that a possibility for overworking is a desire to be considered valuable by others, to be recognized and appreciated, to no longer be overlooked, to be considered special to the team. Or perhaps you're working in order to earn more and more money so that you'll be popular and comfortable so that you'll have security and safety. So at this point, you're no longer working for a simple paycheck or or working to simply help a team. You're putting your work to work for you. Now, your job is employed by your drive to be appreciated. Now your associates are mere tools for your personal career advancement. Or worse, you begin to see them as enemies. Because your work associates are either the means for you to get what you must have, or they're hindrances. They're against you. They're keeping you from getting what you must have. So you have to deploy different schemes like manipulation, pride, jealousy, bitterness, envy. You're doing everything you can to try to satisfy the longing of your heart. And you're placing the weight of Savior... You're placing the weight of idol, of God, on the shoulders of your own performance. And when you can't perform consistently at that high level, you damn yourself. I'm no longer good enough. When you place the weight of Savior on the shoulders of your job, and your job doesn't give you what it promised that it was going to give you, You want to quit. Or even worse, you want to disappear. You want to quit life. You see, the idol we're worshiping begins to own us. It begins to take control of our calendar, of our thoughts, of our emotions. And we buy into the lie that we're going to be satisfied by achievement and financial stability and recognition. My friends, Only God can satisfy your hearts in this way. The gospel says that your identity is securely settled once and for all. We just sang it. It is finished through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes you impressive. You are noticed. You are valuable. You are loved. You are appreciated. You are cherished. You are never at any second of your life overlooked 
or taken for granted, all because of what Jesus did for you. And you know whose opinion this is of you? God, the creator, the one who will stand as the eternal judge of all things, and he judges perfectly. So for him to look at you and judge you as good enough should mean everything to your life now and radical hope for eternity later. God, the creator, loves you. He likes you. He's proud of you because of what his son has done for you. Being saved is believing this. Dr. Ed Welch says, either we will love and serve God or we will love and serve our idols. Idols exist in our lives because we love them and invite them in. But once idols find a home, they are unruly and they resist leaving. In fact, they change from being the servants of our desires to being our masters. Take that work analogy now. Manipulation, envy, jealousy, right? With your work associates. The weight and burden of having to perform high all the time having a score high on those tests all the time. What if you could work that job with total joy? Total joy. What if that pressure wasn't there? What if you could truly celebrate the success and career advancement of your work associates? I mean, what if you could lead the charge in honoring promotions of those that you worked with, even though you were overlooked? the fourth time in a row? What if the job and your performance weren't responsible for your worth and your value and your identity and your satisfaction? See, gospeling your idols and preaching to your idols, allowing the gospel to inform you regularly of your newfound identity and your worth and your value that's found in Jesus is what frees you to live the Christian life with freedom, with joy. A continued deepening of a personal understanding of the gospel and a growth in a, in a personal understanding of the gospel is the only way that we can experience the continued transformation that we've been saved to experience as Christ followers. And this will make us more like Jesus. So if you're not fighting to believe the gospel more and more deeply each day, and if you're not digging to the depth of your idols. And if you're not repenting of your idols once you find them, then there's no way you're having fun living the Christian life. It's, I would say it's impossible. You're missing out on so much. You see, digging for idols is like digging for gold, except you're not digging for something that's going to give you joy. You're digging to find something that lies to you about joy and that's keeping you from joy. Instead of digging for gold, it's like digging for the splinter that's become infected, but the splinter was placed there by your heart because it was supposed to bring you fulfillment and satisfaction. You see, idols can't satisfy. They never will satisfy. I mean, they give fleeting pleasures and joys, but then at the end of the day, when they're expired, when they're no more, when it's gone, you need more. It's an unquenchable thirst. Idols can't satisfy. Back in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 12, Samuel says to the people just before he dies, this is one of his final addresses as a prophet of God to the people of Israel. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. And there was a lot of evil. 
He says, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they're empty. Jeremiah 51 says that idols have no breath in them. They're worthless. They're works of delusion. His words. John Stott says, idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Now, even here in the middle of this quote, I have to stop and tell you, the enemy hates that you're hearing this. Hearing these sorts of sermons is what changes us. And he hates it when God's creation changes. Idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many, but God is one. Idols are visible and tangible. God is visible and intangible. Idols are creatures, the work of human hands. God is the creator of the universe and all of humankind. The gospel continually believed and applied will continually ask, am I looking for something in and fill in the blank? Job, career, friendship, food, money, whatever it might be. Am I looking for something in that that Jesus offers me more fully and completely? You see, to debunk or, or replace idols, you must learn to rejoice in the particular thing that Jesus provides that replaces that particular idol in your heart. So whenever you see your heart in the grip of some kind of disobedience or misery or temptation or anxiety, anger, and so forth, always ask, how are these effects being caused by an excessive hope for someone or something to give me something that only Jesus can give me? Ask, how does Jesus give me so much more fully and graciously and perfectly the things I'm looking for somewhere else? And then rejoice and consider what Jesus has done and how he has given it to you. Know this about repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. Thomas Chalmers wrote a book called The Expulsive Power of a new affection. And in it, he talks about how you can't merely dismiss an affection of worship that's going out towards another object other than God. That you have to direct that worship somewhere else. And you have to place that on something greater. The power of a greater affection. How it expels the old one, and you find satisfaction in worshiping the new one. One great and predominant affection. In other words, you can't just slap your hand of, of your worship towards your idol and say, no more, stop, Jeremy. You know this to be true about this idol. You know this to be true about work. You know this to be true about how you view this person. You know, you know what it's like to find your identity in your automobile, in your home, in your career, in your social media following, whatever it may be. And you just say, stop. That's wrong. You can't do that. 
You've got worship flowing from your heart, and it's genuine worship. It's real worship. You see, you were created to worship, but the difference between obedience and disobedience, between sinful worship and Christian worship, is what you are setting your worship upon, what you're setting your affections upon. What are you esteeming and valuing and placing ultimate value on? You see, freedom from idolatry comes from repentance and the redirection of those worshipful thoughts and feelings from whatever it may be back onto God. You've got to find satisfaction, not in the worship of those things, but in the worship of God and who he declares you to be because of Jesus. Or to to put it another way, and to be really honest here, is one one of the greatest struggles in my life has been food. It still is. Food is a big deal to me. So much so, I'm getting emotional talking about it. I worship food. I worship taste. I worship flavor. I worship being full. I worship the food experience. Every meal has to be epic. I can't merely enjoy food. But what if I could eat food without it consuming me? Is that possible? Over the past year, by grace, I've been able to lose about 65 pounds. And I've eaten a little differently. I've started working out a little bit. But the most significant change over the last 12 months hasn't come from these things. It's come from a change in my relationship with food. I had to change the way I looked at it. I had to change the way I appreciate it. You see, I, was, I realized I was looking for fulfillment in food. I was looking for satisfaction in food rather than seeing food as just fuel. I mean, it's just got to get me through four hours of life without dying of starvation. That's all it has to do. But I was worshiping it. I was thinking on it, dwelling on it, trying to make it bigger and better. Always. I was seeking to not just live, but I was living for food. And I was longing to find satisfaction in food. And when you get it, it's wonderful for a couple seconds. Then you feel guilty. You feel horrible physically, emotionally. And then that passes in a couple hours and then you're thinking about the next meal. In these things, I'm looking for what only Jesus can give to me. Now remember, repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought you could find elsewhere. So I remember watching Rocky recently with my kids, one of the greatest actors, Sylvester Stallone, greatest movie series ever. Star Wars has nothing. Lord of the Rings has nothing. Rocky is amazing. You're welcome. I remember one of those lines in the movie where he says, if I can just go the distance, I'll know I'm not a bum. We all have something just like Rocky does in our lives, where we believe, we talk to ourselves about it, and we often say, if I can have that, I'm not a bum. If I can get that, then I'll know I'm not a bum. I'll prove to everyone that I'm not a bum. We all have these things. In some cases, it's relationships or financial security or independence or achievement, or status. It's different for everyone, but there's some things in your life that you look at and you say, if I just had that, then I would never be a bum again. Here's the question. 
has something besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, its functional preoccupation and loyalty and service and delight? You must ask that when you feel yourself getting extremely anxious, when you're biting your nails down to your knuckles, when you find yourself depressed and, and angry, when you say, what, what is out there that I'm not getting to and why is it driving me like this? Now that's when you're failing, but, but when you're succeeding, you find yourself stretching and stretching and working harder, but you're enjoying it less and less. At a certain point, you need to ask yourself a similar question. You should say, the desires that I have for this achievement, as satisfying as they are, isn't, isn't it possible that what's going on here is I'm trying to patch up a righteousness of my own, that I'm working for my satisfaction and my identity? Is it possible that in being driven to these things, to go at this so hard that I'm trying to prove something about myself? that Jesus has already proven for me? Is this success actually my effort to do for myself what only Jesus can do for me? Am I trying to patch up a righteousness of my own? Now that's repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus to find what you thought could be found elsewhere. My friends, are you experiencing frequent conviction, the revealing of an idol in your heart, and are you repenting over this idol and finding satisfaction in Christ, what you thought could be found there? Is the understanding and the impact of the gospel growing and deepening in your life? Are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you preaching the gospel to your idols? Gospel yourself. Ask others to get a gospel shovel or a gospel searchlight and begin digging with you. Say, I'm, I'm so angry at this person. I want you to help me get to the point, not where I need to dismiss this person because I'm over it, but I should be able to live within a relationship with this person. But my pride, something in me is not letting me do this. Will you help me dig to the depth of my idolatry so that I can find what it is so that then I could be a missionary for the sake of this person instead of just Throw them away because of something personal, because of something that you're believing. Ask the Christian community to work with you in such a way that you can do this together. Vulnerability, authenticity, which are marks of healthy community, must be present, must be there in order for you to do this. But do this and you'll experience freedom. You see, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we don't have to fear being exposed. We don't have to fear our sin or our brokenness. We don't have to pretend that we're not sinful. Our sins shouldn't surprise us. When we confess, we should be like, oh yeah, well, I mean, what else? I mean, of course I knew that already. Our sin shouldn't surprise us. Our brokenness shouldn't try to be hidden because our hope is not in our achievements nor in our obedience. Some of those who live high moral lives in here, we need to repent of our repentance because we're finding our identity even in those sorts of things. We can make idols out of everything. Repent for your obedience because you're finding identity 
in being perfect. But, well, better than that guy. Our hope is in the perfect obedience of Jesus, which has now become ours as if we have achieved it ourselves. When you believe that, you're a Christian. When you continue believing that, you're sanctified as a Christian. The gospel is what saves you. The gospel is what continues to save you. The gospel is what shapes you into being who it is that God has created you to be. Do not dismiss it as step one. Do not overlook it and just try to get better. Dig. Shovel. Searchlight. Allow the gospel to do its work in you. This is the gospel going to work for us. This is what brings freedom. Let me pray for us. God, help us believe this moment by moment. Help us release the ropes that contain the gospel to something very small and low. Help us seek your help and your spirit to illuminate these truths to our hearts so it's not just something that we feel for a moment, but that we begin to work at and develop even gospel skill, Lord, as we begin to more quickly identify our idols and find in you what we're looking for in them so that we can be more so that we could be more accurately who it is that you've created us to be. Lord, do this for us. Amen.